Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Please be seated. <clears throat> the Old Testament lesson from the first book of Samuel provides us with a picture of the continuing apostasy and disobedience of God's children in Israel. Rather than maintaining their unique status as a nation under the rule of their God, they now want to reject him and become a nation like all other nations, a nation ruled by a king. This disobedient behavior of God's people was not new. It had been going on for a long time. It started with the complaining against God that the Israelites made during their exodus from Egypt. That eventually led to Aaron's building of an altar to a golden calf, while Moses was with God on Mount Sinai. Their eventual punishment was 40 years of wandering through the wilderness before they could reach the land that God had promised for them. And yet they still would not learn. They disobeyed God's instruction after crossing into Israel, for example, by taking Canaanite marriage, by taking Canaanite women into marriage. Once more, their religion became corrupted, and this time by those who the Israelites, with whom they intermixed. And then God appointed over them judges and prophets who would guide the Israelites under his care. And still, there were cycles of apostasy, followed by periods of repentance and forgiveness, as God appointed judges to cleanse the land from outside interference and temporarily heal his people, until the next crisis by their disobedience would occur. Samuel, who we read about today, was one of God's great prophets. And yet the people wanted to follow somebody else, a king so that they would no longer be unique and have to obey God's laws. They now wanted a king, not their God, to judge and lead them. The gospel lesson for today illustrates the continuance of Israel's apostasy. The prophets, who were the conscience of the Jewish people, had been replaced by the scribes and Pharisees, whose primary interests were to protect the religious hierarchy and its physical structures. They appeared only to listen to God when his teachings went along with their programs and their selfish motives. <clears throat> Thus, scribes in the temple in Jerusalem came to see Jesus at his hometown of Nazareth. They perceived his divine acts and miracles as a threat to their temple life and well-being. Thus, thus accusing Jesus as one who was working not for God, but for Beasible, a name that the Greeks had given to the devil. The scribes wanted to persuade the crowd that the powers of Jesus, by which they were all astounded, were not messianic, but were demonic. 
Of course, Jesus responded to that accusation with an argument that was certainly a persuasive one to those who lived in the first century. Why would an agent of God, the God of Ekron, for example, or the God Zeus, or even the Prince of Demons, run around the countryside healing people with physical defects or exercising demons of their own creation? That would be like committing suicide. Jesus then warns them about the one unforgivable sin, the sin which he calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What this exactly consists of is not clearly obvious in scripture. There are several theories. One which is suggested by the gospels is that the miracles and exorcisms performed by Jesus cannot be denied by those who witness them. In other words, to deny the power of God in these works was unconscionable and unforgivable. Luke, in chapter 12 of his gospel, seems to suggest or imply that after the resurrection, one might have been able to deny Jesus publicly, but to witness the acts and then reject the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the Twelve who succeeded him would also be unconscionable. In other words, as Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical, the as of biblical Theology states, we might consider that blasphemy against the Spirit is overt, even verbal. Repudiation of the presence of God's Spirit in the ministry of Jesus and those whom he sent. Then there are others who might suggest the repudiation of Paul's preaching of Christ crucified might also be considered blasphemy against the Spirit. It should be obvious that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and apostasy are closely related. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia defines apostasy as standing away from, as a falling away or a withdrawal or a defection. Apostasy is committed by those who have had some relationship to God, or in the case of Christians, by those who have had some relationship with Jesus Christ. In Christianity, both apostasy and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit involve an an overt repudiation of God's work in Christ. However, apostasy may not necessarily always involve the denial of the power of God or the Holy Spirit in the works of Christ or his disciples. And therefore, in the Christian sense, some acts of apostasy might be forgivable, just as they were during the times of the judges, when God continued to redeem his people, despite their falling away. However, of that, we cannot be absolutely sure. And it is important that we as Christians do everything that we possibly can to, present our, to prevent ourselves and our fellow Christians from entering an apostate state. As the epistle suggests, we need to focus on what the Holy Spirit is saying to us and doing for us. We need to look beyond the transient or the things that we see so that we may be reminded of the things that are unseen or eternal. We need to focus on God's work in our lives as we are reminded in the psalm for today. I believe that apostasy often rears its ugly head when we fail to think about God and place ourselves and our desires first.
The first defense against apostasy, in my opinion, is active worship of God. If we become slack in that worship, we stand the chance of allowing those things which are transient rather than eternal take over our lives. Our religious life needs to be as well-defined and well-ordered as our secular life. We know that, for example, our physical health thrives on good food, proper exercise, and a positive attitude. Our religious health thrives on the Eucharist, exercise through worship and the scriptures, which focus our minds upon the eternal. Since God's word is contained in the Holy Bible, is all sufficient for Christian learning and practice. Our worship, theology, key beliefs, and activities cannot be contradictory to God's word, and therefore we should not allow ourselves to stray in our daily lives from the teaching of scripture. We must strive to love the Lord with all of our being and love our neighbor as well. Now, loving our neighbors means that we must be there for others and encourage them. And as bishop, the bishop stated last Sunday, we are called upon to be a missional people who've been commissioned to bring God's word <clears throat> to others. Loving our neighbor means telling them about Jesus Christ and inviting them to worship with us. Loving our neighbor can also mean supporting each other during the time of trial. And loving our neighbor may simply mean that at the end of Sunday services, going up to a parishioner who we do not know, introducing ourselves to him or her, and personally inviting and escorting them to our table at the potluck. Such acts of kindness will help us grow in our knowledge of God and can enable us to make disciples of others. We all know that we are surrounded by apostasy in today's world. Our nation no longer supports Christian concepts upon which this great nation was founded. We are prohibited from praying in public schools. We are no longer the majority, but the minority, whose beliefs are constantly challenged by laws that require us to accept behaviors that we know are contrary to God's teaching. Even some of our own mainstream churches seem to reject biblical truths and often seem to value justice and retribution over goodness and love. If we want to battle the apostasy that surrounds us, we must start somewhere. At the Diocesan Mission Conference two Saturdays ago, our little group of five people decided that we wanted to meet once a week in a public setting and just do morning prayer, inviting others who were there to join us. We are praying about this, and next Sunday after that service, we are going to briefly meet in the narthex, that's the rear of the church, and discuss the implementation of our idea, and we would like to invite anybody else who might be interested in joining with us. Or, if any of you in this congregation have any other ideas as to a discipline or a project that you would like to start, please let Father Greg or me know, and we will try to help you with the implementation of your idea. Mother Teresa once said, If you can't feed a hundred people, 
then feed just one. I am suggesting that as we go about our business during this next week or so, let us find that one person. It's a start. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.